The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, there you go. That's what I liked here. Nice bubbly pour there, Bart. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers. We're sitting with my really good friends, Bart Hanson, Brian Casey, Sam Couture, and we have Tim Wallace from, well, we all know him from Benziger, but now everybody knows him from Sonoma State and their Wine Business Institute. He's the executive in residence and former president of Benziger. So welcome, Tim. How are you doing today, man? Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Not many people say that, but well, it's early. <laughs> you guys twisted my arm and you made me show up. Now don't be too stupid. And you poured me some wine, which well, Tim Tim agreed. Tim agreed to do this, and then he started listening to the episodes. <laughs> right. he's like, so yeah, he's kind of wondering. Pretty casual up yeah. there, don't you? <laughs> it's a good thing. Hey, before we get into it, we want to wish Joey. Benziger, a happy birthday. Joe Benziger, so. 64 years old today. 64 years young. He I wonder is. how many shots of tequila he'll say, have today. 64. It takes, takes a lot of tequila to make it to 64 in the wine yeah. business. <laughs> well, and, and, so and I'll tell you, 64 is a meaningful day or a meaningful year in the life of the Benzigers because with all due respect to my father-in-law, that's when he passed at age right. 64. So Joey right. is, is marking this, I know, as a milestone of, of he's got to get through it. Mike, his older brother, and Bob... Another older brother have passed to the other side. We should, and they to, feel like they're living on borrowed time. We should go rescue him, make sure he's safe this afternoon. Right, keep him in a bubble. <laughs> I, I mean, Joe used to talk about it when I worked for him about the fact that no, you know, Benziger had lived past sixty-four. No male Benziger had lived past sixty-four, and that's why he was always so crazy about his diet and going to the doctor and. Matter of fact, the last time I saw him at a, at a lunch about a week ago, he said, Bart, he goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm 53, Joe. He goes, have you got a heart scan? And I said, no. He goes, do you have heart problems in your family? And I said, no. He goes, tell the doctor you do and just get the heart scan. He goes, it's well worth it. He goes, I'm telling you, you got to do it. And I was like, thank, thank you, Joe. I, I will take that under <laughs> advisement. I love that guy. Really love that guy. You know, after having... Many episodes with your wines in the past. Um, I started to wonder, what's, did you, were you ever a small batch winemaker? Because that's who we talk to. You know, people who do 5,000 cases a year, 1,500 cases a year. Well, well, it was it to, ever like that? It had to start somewhere, right? But right. let's be clear. My role was never to make the wine, farm the grapes, or in fact have strong influence into production. I was certainly somebody who understood the, the business model. And I can tell you that in the very, very first year, there was it was in the single-digit thousands uh, in that they, uh, when they bought the property, the Benzigers bought the property at 1883 London Ranch Road back on Halloween Day in 1980. There was some wine in tank. Uh, there were some vineyards that, uh, that had some grapes. And so they got after it, and then soon they got into buying bulk wine, and that, that became the rise of the Glenellen brand. But Tim, were you in? You were still in school yeah. on in 1980. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, I graduated undergraduate in '78. I was living and working in New York with my then girlfriend and now wife Patsy Benziger, and we came out to um, to live in Glenellen 
uh, with the summer of 87 was kind of the trial run. I was at graduate school at that time in Boston. And uh, the deal was if we could leave New York for me to go to graduate school when we were in married at the time in 19, well, you got married in 83. And so I, I went up to graduate school in 86. Uh, we said, hey, let's spend the summer when I have uh, you know, that summer off in between the two years of graduate school and let's go out and check out the winery and just see what's up. And we did. And uh, we lived with Helen and Bruno Benziger, their parents, uh, in a guest house on their property right above the winery. And I just kind of slowly worked my way into the, the good graces of my brothers-in-law and father-in-law and mother-in-law for that matter. And they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, which was uh, to finish grad school and come on back and, and join them as one of the owners. The interesting thing about Bruno Benziger, uh, and it's something that I don't see now and I, I don't have much uh, experience with it other than myself, and that is he made me the owner in the family, uh, in the marriage. Uh, his daughter was given the right, my wife, to work at the winery, and she passed. She's a nurse and a nutritionist. And he said, well, we want to bring you guys in, so we're going to make Tim the owner. And I now have a consulting business, and I'm, I imagine we'll get to that eventually, but uh, what it taught me was the owner operator mentality is the way to go. If you uh, are in a situation where uh, you're working for a, a privately held company, you want to have the operators, the people who have skin in the game, literally and figuratively to be making decisions for your business. And that, and that's something that worked out for me. And it, I think it worked out for the family in general. And it's, it's, you know, Patsy and I are still married 35 years later. So it worked out for our family as well. That's a good way to put it. I mean, it is obviously, um, uh... You know, doesn't matter the size um, until very recently, sort of the quintessential family run winery. I mean, it was everybody who was in the family. And like you said, owners um, were involved in some, you know, some side of either the business or the production. And and even now in, um, you know, the sort of new iteration, you still have Joe and his, his daughters, you know, involved day to day and in in imagery and Chris, you know, there's, I mean, it is a a family um, sort of lineage of working in a winery. I mean, whether it doesn't matter what you own or what you don't own, you're there working hard at the winery. Yeah. The family was always at the core of what we were about. And I think what you're leading to Sam is now the family doesn't own the winery any longer. And yet there's family members still working there. Um, And it's, there's still a soul of Benziger family inside of that now uh, very large winery owned, uh, property on, on 1883 and the 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 thought about transitioning for us uh in case it's of interest to your listeners is we got to the point where there were eight family members who owned the winery and there just was an agreement going forward as to as to how it would maintain uh, family ownership going forward and it's kind of ironic because some of my client work right now is helping families stay uh, as families uh, through a generational transfer a succession plan but we, we made a decision uh, collectively that it, it wasn't going to be the same kind of business going forward. And so the, the original, uh, the founding members, Mike, the oldest son, uh, was the one that found the property and convinced his father back in, in as I mentioned, early 80, uh, to come out and, and, and be his partner, his financial partner, which is an important part of it. Uh, and uh, he decided, Mike, that it wasn't going to work out for him going forward and he wanted to... Uh, have us consider transitioning to someone else and everyone you know made out well in the deal and those that decided to stay uh at the at the business did 
And in fact, we're giving contracts and, and in some cases even giving compensation increases and responsibility increases. So it worked out in the hands of another, of another uh, privately held company. So um, who was harder uh, to get along with or to be introduced to, Bruno or the brothers? <laughs> All right. Well, here, here's I mean, you here's, were the you you dated the oldest, the first one to date the oldest um, daughter yeah. of you know the, these these boys. They were rambunctious to say the least, and um, I'm sure they must have beaten you up mentally a bit. Well, you know, not, you didn't ask, but I'll but I'll take you there. The first date I had with Patsy was in the the summer of 1976, and the family and and, and I was as well living back east in the New York metropolitan area, kind of a in the bedroom community of New York City where most people's you know, families uh, worked. And uh, it was the summer. I was a college student. Patsy was a college student. We weren't at the same university, but we were home for summer. And uh, long story short, she says, hey, when you come by, just kind of honk in the driveway. They had that, this circular driveway. And, you know, no cell phone and no way of really contacting, just, you know, I'll see you at 7 or whatever it was. And uh, I, come, I come into the circular driveway, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to hug the freaking horn, right? I'm going to, you know, I'm one, you didn't ask, but I'll share with you. I'm one of 10 kids. And so I know big family and I know, you know, kind of, you know, craziness, whatever, when I see it, I've got five brothers. Well, I have four brothers, five sisters. Um, and anyway, I, I knock on the door and there's no answer, but I hear, you know, a TV on and it turns out it's a, it's a baseball game. It's a Yankee baseball game. And Bobby and Joey are in there with a bunch of their friends two uh, Patsy's two older brothers. And uh, I walk in and Bobby looks to me and he goes, hey, you know, you must be Tim. Come on in. You want a beer? I said, yeah, sure. I, sat, I had cracked a beer, sat down. We were watching the game. Those guys were already kind of, you know, a couple of beers into it, let's say. And they were pretty rowdy. And uh, you know, one thing led to another. And while I'm there, uh, they literally started to rumble in front of me over some fight over God knows what. Probably who, <laughs> who ate the last Dorito. And they, I'm not kidding you, they broke. Joey's, I mean, Bobby's leg that day, right in front of me. Now, of course, I didn't know that it was broken, and no, neither did anybody else, and Bobby was screaming like he likes to do, you know, you know, all the time. Anyway, and uh, Patsy, who's actually a nurse, studying to be a nurse at the time, comes running downstairs, you know, with hearing this, and of course, having no idea that I was in the room, and goes over and gets to the aid of her brother, and she says, oh my God, you have to stabilize this, and, you, and she turns and looks over her shoulder, and she sees me sitting there with a beer. She goes... Holy shit. She looks at me and she goes, how long have you been here? And I said, you know, about, you know, 15 minutes. She goes, oh my God. She goes, oh. And so she's like, okay, well, wait. Yeah, she wraps kind of Joey and she says, you guys need to, you know, get him to the hospital, whatever. And then she kind of, <clears throat> kind of cleans herself up and just comes to me and she says, hey, can we leave? Do you mind? She said, and I said, I'm just finishing my beer. She goes, no, we'll, we'll get more beer. And she gets in the car and she freaked out on the way out of the driveway. Like she said, I thought I told you to call me, you know, to, to, to uh, you know, honk the horn. And I said, Pat, I'm sorry. And she, to this day, has is in a state of like panic like we're we're gonna our oldest son is gonna get married in march and she's really concerned about her brothers you know at the wedding like meeting with some of the wallace family from back east that may not remember these guys as you know as they, they met them during the wedding and in some cases they've seen them over the years but in many cases they haven't seen them and she's still to this day freaked out well that's the brothers. Now, let me tell you about Bruno, and I'll cut to the chase. So literally the day that I proposed to Patsy, which was out here in the West Coast, even before uh, we, we were living here, uh, I come back to the ranch where they were all living at the property, and um, I had already proposed to her, and she had said yes, and we were kind of going to go home and have dinner with Helen and Bruno on their property, and this was in... Uh, I, you know, in the February, because we had just gone a ski trip with those guys up to Tahoe. And in any event, we come in, and... Uh, 
I go to Helen Benziger, and this is kind of a little, you know, not typical. I went to her and I said, Helen, I just want to let you know. Or Patsy and I were standing there says, I've, I've asked Patsy to marry me. And she says, great. And she looks down and sees there's, there's the ring. And she goes, well, have you told Bruno? I said, well, no, I'm going to get to him right now. I saw you first. And she goes, oh, my God, you have to talk to him. And she says, and get a, get a glass of wine and get him a glass of wine. And I said, well, what should I get him? She goes, oh, just get him a cab or something. So I open up a Glen Ellen Proprietors Reserve, you know, $5 Cabernet that was making them a mint at the time. His favorite wine, of course, the one that was the bestseller. And, uh, and uh, you know, he, I go to him with the bottle in hand and two glasses. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's winter, so it's dark. It's before dinner. Uh, I said, hey, Bruno, um, can we talk? And he looked at me like, yeah, but w- w- what's on your I mind? Wish we had, and he sees wish that we I could have broadcast that look on your face. He sees over a microphone. He sees that he ha- he, I have the ammo, and he's like, oh, "Okay, yeah." I said, well, "Let's go outside." He goes, "Why do we need to go outside? It's cold." And I said, "Well, I just want to have a private conversation with you." And this is kind of like a role reversal, like the young kid is saying to the old man, "Let's take a walk." Well, we walk out, and you know, I pour him a glass, and he says, well, 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 "Before we go too far, what, what's this about? What do you want to know?" And I said, "Hey, I'd like to know if it'd be okay if I married Patsy. I'd like to, you know." I mean, I proposed to her and I hope it'd be okay with you. He goes, oh, shit, is that all you want? And I thought you wrapped my car around a fence. He said, I borrowed his car that day. And he thought maybe that I banged up his car. And it was like, he said, ah, that's fine. Come on in. Talk to Helen. We can get this done. And so the point is, these guys, they they make you feel at ease, but at the same time, kind of ill at ease. You, you're like, wow, that's a nutty way to ha- handle this. But they, And then, of course, we partied on and life was good. And we, as I said, we've been married 35 years and I've been a... You know, I've adored, I adore these guys and we miss Helen and Bruno for sure. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't say who, which one was harder to deal with, but they're equally exotic. I, I just wanted to get the, a little bit of the conversation going. The, so. the, the first date story is, I mean, you know, if they ever make the Benziger winery biopic, that has to, <laughs> that has to be, you know, the opening scene, right? I mean, the, the, the Yankees game rumble in the living room, broken leg, first date. And you should, if you had, you know, and, but if you had honked the horn mm. and waited for her in the driveway, you know, you, you wouldn't be sitting here today. Well, who knows? Maybe they wouldn't have had the rumble. Maybe they were showing up. I, I don't know. Well, but. Or, or, or maybe they wouldn't still would have had the rumble and Bobby's leg would have been broken and they wouldn't have and taken nobody care would have of been it for there for 12 hours. Just don't have <laughs> she never would have heard the horn because she would have been, you know, taking care of Bob. Yeah, yeah. it's true. I may still never had, a, with have had the date. <laughs> You know, it's so nice. We are called the winemakers, and obviously we've got two winemakers here. Uh, but it's nice for me to talk to you because I've spent my life in marketing mm-hmm. and advertising, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, it's so interesting. I started out with, you know, were you ever a small batch processor? And it's, I find it fascinating how this business grew. Um, you, you, obviously, did you know what it could be back in 1987? Do you ever have any idea it was a $200 million sale? No. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's what was reported. And let's keep that in mind. I I can't share. They'd kill me if I, you know, went any deeper than that, but yeah, it was a very successful sale in 93, but no, I mean, even the original plan, there was a, a, a note, a a note of indebtedness with um, farm credit bureau uh, way back when, before I even joined them. And you had to put down kind of the business plan and the business plan was, you know, we're going to make and sell wine and, Hopefully by year five, we'll sell 50,000 cases. Um, so year five would have been safe to say around 86 if you count full years of sales. And by that time, they'd already eclipsed a million cases. 
And oh, that was wow. before I officially joined. Um, I think it was like 800,000 when I got there. But no, the, 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 way it, the way it rocketed off was, A, it was priced right. Um, Bruno Benziger had uh, owned a distributorship, a wine and spirits import and distributorship in New York. He knew the wholesale community. He knew uh, that you have to price uh, product to sell not only wine but spirits, which was one of his things. He was a big scotch importer. Um, and when he when he went back with the with the concept uh, to uh, get the winery going on a national on a national basis, he sat with uh, distributor friends in New York, and uh, they said, "Well, Bruno, what are you going to call this brand?" And he hadn't even named the brand yet. And he goes, "Well, I don't know. What do you guys think?" And they said, "Well, remind me where where's the company again?" And we said, he said, "Glen Ellen." And they were like, well, I remember these were his guys who were, were wholesale partners with him uh, with, uh, with uh, in what, at one time a very successful Scotch product. And they're like, well, you know, Glenn Livett, Glenn that's Vittich, perfect, yeah. Glenn Ellen. Oh. It fits. He said, I love that. You know, that, that that's perfect. Why don't you just call it? And he goes, I, yeah, you think that would work? And he goes, that oh works God. for me. And then what, what about the label? Thing. And then they drew the label and and from memory the label it's a yellow the chardonnay which was the biggest seller it's this curved um uh, you know um glenellen across the top much like you would see a scotch to this day and that was the origins of the label and the point is it, he worked back from the shelf he priced the product yeah there was margin in there that had to be to keep the business going but he wasn't about getting money he was about getting sales and he needed the the, the, the money would flow so there, there's a great lesson to be learned there, and I've never forgotten it. Was his attitude was you work back from the shelf on your pricing, and you don't look in the other guy's pocket in terms of you know who's making more money in the deal, whether it's the distributor or the retailer or the wholesale or the supplier. And he had these uh, what we call Brunoisms that uh, guided the company from the start. And of course, Mike was very uh, specific and very engaged in, in making his wines. Those are not the wines he wanted to make, by the way. He wanted to make estate wines, which eventually we started doing uh, on a larger scale once we sold the Glen Ellen brand. But uh, so, so Bruno was all about selling, and Mike was about kind of uh, our, our artistic winemaking. And what got in the middle of that was Joe Ciotti and company with the bulk wine that was on the market back in, in the early days, and they just sucked it up into their brand called Glen Ellen. I think you were, there was like five wines from Glen Ellen that were in the top three in sales nationally or something at, at, at one point. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. When we sold the brand in 93, we marketed it in the, in the, what was the mergers and acquisition, you know, marketing book, uh, that, that was, you know, the, the Chardonnay, the Cab, the Merlot and the Sauvignon Blanc and the White Zin were all top five sellers. Yeah. Uh, nationally. And Can you, the, you imagine that? That's amazing. The, the, right now, if portfolio. someone had that sort of... Uh, well, and, and that it was family-owned. Right. On the mic. <laughs> On the mic. And it was family-owned as well. And, and, that, and that it was family-owned, yeah. you know. I mean, that's... You know, I mean, granted, the, some of your competitors at the time were family-owned also, but um, but they had very long histories where you guys were the upstarts. That's right. And, you know, the... the uh, it wouldn't have happened without the philosophy of, you know, one of the partners said, you know, you don't have to own the cow to get the milk. And that was the concept that said, look, we don't have to be, you know, Mike notwithstanding, we don't have to be the ones that are farming the grapes, creating the wines and bringing them to market. They stylized bulk wine. And this is, you know, for your readers this, or your listeners, this is not exactly the sexy part of the business, but it's a huge business model that many people around yeah, the world- Most of the wine on the planet, I mean- is Are negotiant wines. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so then in that regard, you're right. Uh, you know, most people, if you think about the 5,000 case production and the small wine family and the, 
you know, the vertically integrated ones with the owner vineyard and they stylize their wines in their own wineries and people come up on appointment to try those wines. That's, that was not the business plan, obviously. Uh, this one went the other way and, and created a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. Uh, in the current wine world, um, is a, is a trajectory like Glen Ellen even possible in, in 2018 with the way that, you know, so much of uh, is, you know, in consolidated, you know, m- giant wine corporations and things. I, could could that history be repeated? I mean, I don't think so. Uh, and the reason is that, you know, it's so competitive now. So you have these very large businesses that, well, you know, with the, with the purchase of Maomi or the purchase of Prisoner or, uh, you know, these very large brands that are they're, they're trying to drive life into even bigger. They're not at the level. Glen Ellen was 4 million cases when we sold it in 93. I don't... Lord. I'm not sure there is a brand that, that's that big. There probably is. I don't think Kendall Jackson all in with just that label. It might approximate it, but, you know, their whole enterprise is bigger than that, but they, of course, have many other wines as well. So the thing, you know, it's also that this, the consumer with the, you know, the advent of the digital age, they can shop online. They can, they, they can shop for other opportunities. This was an early stage development of, well, I mean, varietally designated wine wasn't really available on the shelves of Safeway until Bruno Benziger, you know, insisted that it be labeled Chardonnay, Cabernet, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc. And Bob Mondavi was very upset with him. He said, well, wait, Bruno, you know, you shouldn't be labeling those wines, you know, at that price. And he says, well, Bob, that is what those wines are. He, he was buying them from Ciotti. He was buying them from the bulk market. He was probably buying them through through an intermediary from Bob Mondavi, to be honest with you. And Bob was Bob White, Bob Red, and he, you know, he, he made his better wines varietally designated. But they, that was the beginning of what they call the fighting varietals. And the Sebastianis got in it, and KJ got in it, and and, uh, and Behringer got in it. Well, and then, Tim, it had to be a little controversial for you guys by calling the wine proprietor's reserve. Right. Um, that th- th- Did did you get some grief for that? Oh, yeah. And did you just put your head down and just push yeah. through it? Yeah. It's one of those things where I can point my finger. It wasn't my idea. and and But it was Bruno's, and it was it turned out to be a brilliant marketing idea. So as, as we know in this country, to this day, I'm pretty sure, reserve has no official meaning in the eyes of the... Uh, the, the TTF, or the BA, used to be the BATF. What's it called? The TTB. Um, and uh, it, it was bastardized. Let's face it. It, it the term uh, has relatively no distinction, and yet it's probably still confusing to the consumer in a way that it has says, a lot of meaning, though, to the consumer. Honestly, yeah, that's right. And 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 what I meant was from the supply side. So, so it was. We were allowed to do it. We did it. And, you know, people who were getting into varietal wine, you know, to this day will tell us, oh, yeah, that's the wine that I, I cut my teeth on that wine. That Chardonnay. What was that? Glen Ellen Chardonnay. That was awesome. What was it? Three ninety nine. You know, and they and they remember getting into the, the, the varietal category through those that portal, whether it was Glen Ellen or Sebastiani or, or you know, Napa Ridge was from Berenger. And there were a few others that we uh, the Fetzers had a Sundial Chardonnay. I mean, it was it was a heavily. It was very competitive when we were doing it, but it was a handful of competitors. Today, it's you know crazy time. Yeah. Tim, what would a shelf set have looked like yeah. in that day? Of, of Glen Ellen? No, not just, just what would oh. the environment you're going into uh, yeah. look like, too? Well, so we legitimately had Nielsen scan track information or what they called InfoScan at the time, IRI, and we were able to see 
you know, what the movement was. And that greatly influenced the trade uh, shelf sets. And when we say shelf set, that is to say when you walk into, say, a Safeway in California, you literally want to see where, where your brand is and what are the adjacencies, meaning what, it's, what are the competitors next to you, and was it varietal or brand set? In some cases, we had brand sets where we had a wall, when I say a wall, four, four uh, shelves, maybe six SKUs wide, 24 facings of just Glen Ellen, and next to it would be uh, Sebastiani wines, and next to it would be the Behringer wines under Napa Ridge and next to it might be the Fetzer wines uh and and in Sutter Home of course all sold by brand not also by brand yeah. but then there was also varietal in some cases you know it, it I think Safeway was brand for a while and and others were were uh, varietal and of course price point differentiation as well Lo- the lowest price wines on the bottom shelf the highest price wines on the top shelf which is still the case today so the brand set was was easier to understand if you wanted to shop by brand but People really want to shop by price and varietal, and that's you know that's really how I think it's done today. And uh, I, I can't think of anywhere where you would walk in now, unless it's a, a one featured producer, where you'd walk into any supermarket or wine shop anywhere, and it would be grouped by by brand. No, no, because that's not how the consumer wants to shop. She, she or he, and we say she because you know it's the female that's often the, the shopper at the at the supermarket, and she's you know she'll want her Chardonnay or her Sauvignon Blanc or her you know her White Sin or her Rosé as they're calling it these days or Cab Merlot whatever, and then they just what, what price and you know what's 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 on deal maybe what's being promoted by a shelf talker and then they they buy it that way. So Tim, you kind of you went through that first sale with with Glen Ellen and then the sale of the Benziger um, name. Uh, but you decided not to hang around after that sale. And why was that? Yeah. So there was an option and Mike Benziger and I both decided we would not take the option of staying at the business. Uh, he of course is the one that uh, was an, initiated the, the, the thought of actually getting out in any event. Um, and I just had said, you know what? It's been a great run. I was there for 28 years uh, I still got a little go in me, and I wanted to broaden uh, my my own learning curve, and also just maybe my impact in the, in the industry. I had no clear understanding of where I was going to end up, but you know, I was fortunate that both sales you know set me up, and so I didn't have to be anxious about what my next move was. But I, I was gainfully employed within six months, which is you know in some households that might be a long lag time. But I was able to you know get through the six months no problem, and. And now I've got a much more diverse uh, challenge in terms of my, you know, day to day. The reason not to stay, though, uh, it was also let's let the other guys, you know, get a whack at this. And then, then I, honestly, I wasn't looking forward to having a boss. I I'd used to be, I got used to being the boss. Yeah. You know, with you know, if Mike was listening right now, he'd say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, brother! On the, check that org chart. You were always reporting to me." And it's true. But he left me to the business side, and I certainly left him to the the production side. So we had a nice partnership. Well, and there was just the one guy, I think, that, that they sent to the Benziger property. I mean, all the employees pretty much stayed the same, but they sent one guy to kind of keep an eye on things or be a liaison between you and the, and the, uh, the company that purchased it. Um, so that was the guy that would have been your boss. I guess, well, he actually literally took my chair. Um, oh, and this wow. was and this was uh, literally literally that's the office that he moved into. And, uh, you know, I don't know that that's how it would have worked out, but perhaps uh, and that would have been a, a tough swallow because he was a, uh, you know, a younger by maybe 15 years younger and came just through sales and didn't have any broad general management experience. And uh, but I, to to the positive uh, that that's a tremendous uh, case study and how to do it right in terms of a large company acquiring a, 
a family company that has a lot of equity and a lot of soul from that original family, keeping everybody, taking care of them from a compensation standpoint, having very little, having a very light footprint on the property, really just being a liaison to the to the mothership, if you will, and they kept it that way for several years until more recently there there's been some natural uh, turnover and they're putting you know more uh, new new people in and it's being run perhaps a little different today but boy they they did a great job and they're growing the brand which is to their credit well and for that first six months what are you doing are you doing some soul searching wondering you know what what you're going to do next some good squaw valley days in <laughs> well we sold in, was uh, in june never we mind. sold in june we sold in june but uh yeah so it was uh i mean i was very instrumental in actually working with the investment banking side of it and getting the deal done. So I saw it coming right up to the day we did the deal. And so you'd say, well, you should have been pretty prepared. And I was in the sense that I knew what the date certain might be when I would be not working there any longer, but I had no real time to think about, well, what am I going to do? It was really getting the deal done, right? I mean, you can imagine it's, it's, there's no guarantee that a sale is going to happen. You have to go through a whole process uh, of of uh, you know interviewing if you will uh, other pers- uh, prospective suitors and then you sign an exclusive agreement which has about thirty days and allows them to do due diligence and and then eventually you get into the final you know uh, end game and so yeah I packed up my stuff uh, the weekend before as I anticipated the, the timeline and and I couldn't really signal to my secretary or others in the company that this was happening so it was a you know kind of a, a sure exit but then finally the last day came I packed my stuff I drove off site with my wife who helped me you know carry boxes to my car and uh you know we woke up the next day like now what yeah. you know and it was it was almost like you had just gotten I mean in an odd way it was like you just got married like all the planning that goes in is all of you who know who've been married you know it's you're so tied up in the planning and the who's going to come and where are they going to sit and what's the menu and what about the music and the after party and then of course there was a bachelor party before that and the rehearsal dinner and who's going to have what speech and and then boom you wake up the next day like holy shit you know if you're lucky to go on a honeymoon you you probably sit on some beach somewhere like what happened well that's kind of how I felt it was like wow I saw it coming I did it now what I did know that I wanted to be in the classroom uh it was something I was trying to work on at the Sonoma Valley High School you know the local high school here where my kids went to school I was thinking of bringing what they call a case study a business case study class to the seniors whereby my my thought was well, let's showcase local businesses and have the owner operator of the local business. I'll interview them and maybe hopefully if I could get somebody to help me out with just writing up the case, write up a story about his decision or her decision about, you know, something that was happening at work. And this way show the local students, you know, about the local businesses and what, you know, what are possible career paths, et cetera. Well, I didn't quite get off the ground because the, the, the high school really wasn't really ready for that. And okay, that got me kind of juiced up though 10 years ago, let's say. And then I, then I talked to the community college, Napa Junior College, and I met with an um, a, uh, uh, administrator there and I said, what would you think of it? this case study? And they said, we like the idea, you know, but we don't have anything quite like that. You, you'd have to create it. And I was like, oh, okay. And so kind of back on me and I was like, hmm, that kind of slowed me down. Of course, I still had a day job. And then, as things would have it, the Sonoma State Wine uh, Program came to visit the winery about three weeks before we sold in 2015. And I met the dean that day. 
And I had already thought through how I wanted to kind of get involved in teaching. And I brought him up to my office, kind of snuck him away from his, you know, his tour with the students, et cetera. And I, he saw that I was dead serious about getting in the classroom. Now he had no idea we were going to sell our business. He was there thinking this was a sustainable business and we were recognized as such in terms of sustainable farming. And they were showing the students that, uh, long story short, uh, he said, why don't you come into the classroom in, in a leadership class for us, uh, you know, mid, mid late June. I said, okay. And I knew the date would be presumably after we were get the sale. And I get up in the class and I have this PowerPoint presentation about things that I wanted to talk about. Of course, all they wanted to talk about was the sale. These were executive MBA students that are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're in a position to want to ask good questions. Well, the long story short is that was the beginning. And the dean said, hey, it looks like you may be more available. Maybe we should go further with this. And it took a couple of months because this was actually in June, right after the sale. I mean, it started right then and there. And then we finally put something together um, where they brought me on. And now I'm much more involved in the teaching than I was even in his original concept. So that brings us to Sonoma State University's Wine Spectator Learning Center, where you are the uh, key executive in residence, right? That's right. This is fascinating. Davis teaches people how to make wine and be vintners, and you're teaching people how to be marketing guys. Yeah. And not only just marketing, but general managers. Okay. It's, 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 yeah, it's that is a difference. You know, because I, I um, my entry into the wine business, obviously, my whole life. But when I come back to sixteen six hundred, uh, from a marketing, PR, politics world, um, the first thing that I did was sign up for uh, an online wine business class from Sonoma State, just to like have some idea of learn the lingo of this other side that I had never dealt with, and 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 the whole deal. And it is, I mean, in Sort of the the Davis comparison, John is is probably pretty spot on as far as like you go to Davis and you know get your degree and your you know enology and viticulture from Davis. It carries this degree of weight in the in the industry where a you know an MBA in the, from the Wine Business Institute at Sonoma State is as far as that goes really the only equivalent thing out there it carries that kind of uh, you know kind of weight into the into the business world right so Sonoma State has taken a very strategic uh, move to say we're not about the wine making or the production of viticulture knowledge etc Davis clearly has that Fresno's got them I mean, there's a lot of places the Napa Junior College does a lot of good work in that area the business side of it which is you know obviously that's my sweet spot is is important in as we know in our industry and uh, and so Sonoma State you know long before I came along probably more than 10 years ago I think it's just about 10 years started a an MBA that had a wine focus and it was so slow you know burned until they finally have more recently gotten um, uh, more recognition and thanks to the wine spectator folks Marvin Schenken specifically they've uh, they donated several million dollars and they were followed on by by tens of million dollars behind that and created an entire learning center there at the heart of the campus and that's where our state-of-the-art how nice classrooms are yeah that's great well and, and it is interesting that you're saying you know 10 years ago i mean the fact that i mean sonoma sonoma state didn't have when i was in high school sonoma state was an option if that's where you had to go you know so that where was you played in the, soccer in the or lacrosse right yes yeah. um and and but it it seemed like it would always been a natural um place for the wine business um, you know, for for classes in the wine business for years, it's amazing how long it took. Is I guess my point, and it's amazing also how much it's taken off since then. 
I mean, it's really this has really grown a lot in and a lot of um, interest in ten years, right? Tim? Do you see older students too? Yeah. So I'm I'm uh, my area right now where they have me focusing is with the executive MBA in the wine space, and so the average age of our student is thirty eight. Yeah. So these are mid career. Um, people in, in middle management, if you will, in companies. They could be, you know, head winemakers or assistant winemakers at a large company. These are people who have responsibility for other individuals who are making decisions or, or have discretion in their day-to-day managerial oversight of whatever role they're playing. Clearly, they also come from the marketing sales uh, accounting side of the business. And what they're doing is they're getting themselves in a classroom, in some cases, about 20 students, uh, we had 24 that graduated in, in this past summer that I was uh, a part of. And they, this, the learning, and as much as I'd like to think that myself and the other professors are adding a lot of value, it's the dialogue amongst their peers that really drives the true learning curve because they're sitting across or in some cases in study groups and or you know in the classroom with each other and coming from a very different point of view, whether they're from a big company or a small company, or as I point out, they could be coming from the production side and want to get uh, a business education or they're on the business side and they want to get a better understanding of how to be the general manager, not just a, a functionally specific market or a salesperson or account, et cetera. And they're, and they're dug in. These are serious people. They, they're paying good money and uh, they're there to learn. They're not there to kind of punch at their ticket. They, they, they actually want to get something out of their investment. And so it's in a very engaging, very rewarding environment to be part of. So is your consulting basically doing the same thing, but in a one-on-one with more access to you? Um, That's right. So I have about, well, four wineries right now, uh, two and two or five, actually, one in the Russian River, two in Napa, and two in, in Sonoma Valley, where I'm doing different things, everything from helping with strategic planning for the, the, the management team that's in, that's in place to, in one case, working on succession planning of a generation two to generation three, and in another case, actually helping with, with uh, some M&A advisory. I'm not a licensed broker-dealer, but, I, but I've been through a couple of sales, and I'm helping the family figure out how to take their brand to market mm. in terms of a sale. So really capitalizing on the things that I've experienced and that I, and I enjoy doing, and I have some uh, a point of view that help others. Yeah. Is there one best business practice uh, story that you can tell uh, that you've learned being in the wine business like this? I mean, let's, what do you mean by business practice? Oh, work back from the shelf. You mentioned that originally. One thing I like that Tim says, he says, delegate whenever possible. (laughs) Um, I think that's important. And he, he knows the functional responsibility. I said, I was going to ask about general managing versus marketing sales. Well, you nailed it. Well, I, I think that one of the things that is missing most uh, as I've observed with uh, client work that I've done, and in fact with our own businesses, is getting alignment around a goal. Um, when you have a disparate group of people, I mean, if you have more than two people in a room, probably, probably more than one person in a room, but certainly as it scales up to larger, you know, 10, 15 people, and you're trying to determine a path, a goal for the company, whether it's in a timeline of a, a month or year, or, you know, in some cases, five year for strategic planning, keeping people focused on the prize is, is a true art and science. It's one thing to have a, a definitive uh, quantitative end game that says, okay, and if we do it in this way, with this volume at this price, with this, you know, margin, we'll have this at the end of the day in terms of profitability. But very few people are motivated, motivated by profit. They're motivated by self-worth. They're motivated by their contribution. They're motivated by 
uh, feeling like they're making uh, you know, a difference in terms of their day-to-day work and getting all of that kind of intellectual capital aligned and in some cases emotional capital aligned is really the art form of general management as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, from the outside, it looks seamless. Did you ever have a marketing plan that went awry? They always say no marketing plan <laughs> survives the first, uh, con- you know, combat with the enemy. So it's, did you ever go through that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, some of us, I think everyone at this table was old enough to remember the Great Recession. So you, you have a situation where you've got, you know, plans in place for your sales year 2008, 2009. You pick, pick your poison in terms of when shit hit the fan. But safe to say it, businesses and not only in the wine business really got it themselves into a tough situation. Well, we were literally downsizing by strategic design the Benziger uh, winery at, at the just before the recession. We had brought in an outside consultant. We had gone through a series of about five different meetings over the course of six months to determine that we wanted to essentially vacate some very attractive price points with our brand, knowing and take them up in price and knowing in doing so we were going to give up, uh, you know, market share, give up volume. Uh, we changed the, the label a bit. We, we went all in on sustainable on the front label and we had biodynamic for our high end wines. Uh, and we wanted to make our point of difference uh, the way we made the wine in a very sustainable way. And we thought and we knew that it was costing us more money and therefore we thought we should charge more. And we thought we would get out of the the the, the fight of uh, you know, $9.99 to say $14.99 price point, and which is really where a, a big part of the market remains today. Well, yeah. And then all of a sudden came the recession. So just as we're rolling out these more distinctive wines, if you will. Uh, we called them meaningfully different and differentiated. The market was like, yeah, we don't really care about your story. So there's no way that we're going to continue to support, this is a retailer now, support your brand if you take a price increase. He says, you have no idea what people are coming in and offering us right now for that shelf space. Meaning, you know, what they called BOGOs, buy one, get one. So 50% discount was kind of the the the, the, the marketplace at a time when we were trying to, grow our price point. So we, we froze the prices, absorbed the losses and, and gutted it out until we got to the other side. So that was a huge learning for us. Well, Tim, I don't, I think some people out there, if they don't know that Benziger also had another label, uh, called imagery, imagery estate winery, which was down the road that had an art, extensive art collection every year. So if you did a Sangiovese every year, the Sangiovese would have a different label by, from a different artist. And then, so at some point you ended up with, I don't know how much uh, artwork, but whose idea was that to donate all that to Sonoma State? Well, um, it was the ownership group's decision to do that. Let's, let's leave it at that. But the, 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 the purchaser of Benziger, the wine group, took very little interest in that brand. That's or, what I was or, curious or about, that why, if they didn't fight you on that. Yeah, they, they took very little interest and said, you know, we're not in our business, we're in the wine business. Um, we're not going to value that art at what you think it's worth. And we had it valued by uh, people who were, um, you know, art art evaluators. And they said, well, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to pay a, you know, a dollar for dollar on that. How, how many pieces of artwork was it at that point? Just about 400 pieces. There might even been a little over that. And so, you know, I just turned to my guys, you know, my partners and said, well, look, well, then let's keep it off the table. It's not going with the deal. And then uh, I think it was in a discussion with with our accountant. And he said, well, you know, what are you guys going to do with all that? I mean, you know, your homes will be overwhelmed with this. This is not. And he said, no, we, we want to keep it together. And the curator for the from the beginning to the end, a guy named Bob Nugent, 
who was the head of the art program at Sonoma State for many years. He had, had since retired, but he was still working with us. He said, well, what about donating it? And of course, you know, I know that if you donate things of value, you can get a write-off. And so we had this windfall of, of revenue associated with the sale that we could offset with some of the value of this artwork that we were donating, and it kept all the art together. And that was the goal. We, we had always kept all of the art uh, in a continuum, if you will, from the beginning to the end, in a tremendous legacy of its, well, it, you know, some people might say we were the, the best surfers in Kansas, but we had the largest collection. <laughs> Perfect, though. We had the largest collection of art with a singularly, uh, you know, single-themed uh, art collection. And it's, the theme was this thing called the Parthenon, which people would know as, as a, uh, a Greek temple. Uh, but there was this little rendition of that temple, if you will, in, in wood form and dilapidated form on the Benziger Winery site that became the signature uh, icon, if you would, of every single piece of, of art that was created, the 400 pieces. So uh, these modern artists had to in some way incorporate the pillars, and they some did so in a very minimalist way, some did it in a very straightforward way. But it was kind of a trippy thing where people would come to the winery, to Imagery Winery, and they have a glass of wine, and then they walk through the gallery, and they'd be looking for this representation of the Parthenon. Always. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was like a Where's Waldo of wine. Right, yeah. right, yeah. You can so, find it on I, a bee's head at one time. There isn't very many places within the you know fifty mile radius of where imagery was that could have housed uh, an, an, a collection like that. And I mean, really, Sonoma State, as the crow flies, is ten miles from from the heart of Sonoma Valley, where where you know Benziger and imagery is. To to keep it, you know, within the the geographic region. Um, it seems just like such a natural and just sort of the way in general that now this legacy is, is continued on to, you know, our closest, uh, you know, four year university higher education place. Right. Um, and interesting, you wouldn't know this, but if you've ever gone up to the, the, the wine, uh, spectator learning center where we teach, uh, the art is all around that wine center now. It's cool. it's been it's well the, as I say there's more than 400 pieces and so they have them in in some of the arts and science classrooms. They have it in actually a gallery on site and they have it in in the halls of this uh, learning center which we love. So can can you go and uh, visit the gallery and and walk through it? Yes, yes. Okay. It's, a, it's 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 you know it's Sonoma State has their own gallery, and on on uh, some kind of rotation they'll bring art out in different in different. Uh, in different at different time periods, so you'll you'll never see it all you know, all four hundred pieces, and even at our winery, you weren't able to see four hundred. It's you, a lot. You, it was <laughs> we had we had you know attics filled with it as well, but uh, it's all there. Sonoma State owns it all, and uh, it's now be, it's now showing its face in different buildings uh, on a regular basis. Tim, what was it like when you made the strategic decision to create imagery? Yeah, so. Uh, well, we've got a and we've got a bottle yeah. of beer on the table here, which I think might be yeah, a part of the story. There yeah, you go. Well, well. So, uh, you think that? How do you think that's tasting? Yeah. <laughs> the origin of 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 the imagery deal was that Joe Benziger. God bless Joe's birthdays today, right? Happy we birthday, toasted Joe. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday Joe. Joe. Joe met Bob Nugent, the aforementioned uh, curator and and head of the art department at Sonoma State, at a um, um, polo match in Kenwood, I believe it was, right? And the, uh, uh, o the Oakmont uh, Polo Grounds. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, apparently, as the story goes, there was a brawl, and it wasn't Joe, believe it or not, <laughs> it that was not in the brawl, brawl. Or, nor Bob Nugent, who you'd. It, it was a couple of like Fijians or Samoans or something. Right. So these guys are getting after it pretty good. <laughs> and I think Joe, Bob, and perhaps an army of others, I don't know, decided to pull these guys apart. And uh, 
they got to meet each other. And Bob Nugent said, hey, I'm, I'm an artist in town. And he said, hey, I'm a winemaker. And he said, oh, I've always wanted to do a label. And hey, you know, back in those days, I'm sure it was a business card or something. And the two of them, Joe and Bob, connected back in, in the mid, mid-80s on this idea of Bob creating a, uh, a, a label. And he did. And uh, the rest is history. He, he then became our curator and he got a tremendous uh, following around the world for people that, well, it's interesting, you know, artists like anybody else like wine and uh, they, they, they commission a little work of art. In some cases, it's a big one and others, it's a little one. And they get 12 cases of wine as part of the deal with their with their art label on it. And it's Best a nice wine. business card ever. And they uh, and then they can share it with their friends. And in some cases, we had, you know, people do do more than one one work of art over time. But yeah, it was it's a it was fanciful. And the thinking was, you know, broaden your palate. That was the marketing concept we came up with this notion of with the consumer at Benziger, you would have the classic, the more traditional varietals of Cab, Chard, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot, etc. And over at Imagery, you weren't able to find a Cab, a Chard, a Sauvignon Blanc, or a Merlot. You would find Sangiovese, or you'd find Malbec. A sing, you know, single releases of Petit Verdot and Legrand, Nero yeah. Diablo. I mean, they went. I I worked there for five years. <laughs> it was great working with all kinds of own varieties were popping up. It, it, I mean, it was the awesome. Barbera, the Tempranillo. When people would walk uh, in, I think at one point there was twenty two, twenty three different wines. So wh- whoever walked in, you were going to find something that they liked. Yeah, or yeah. they and and certainly something that they'd never had. Well, that's you know? for sure. Yeah. So this was really a discovery kind of winery, as far as we positioned it. It was yeah. this is this is and this allowed us uh, from a business standpoint. This allowed us to. Uh, refer uh, people from one winer to the other and and pretty much guarantee they were going to have a very different experience and it was a genuinely reasonable thing for them to want to see both wineries if they had an appetite for uh, you know more than one winery in that day. How profitable was imagery? I mean, as compared to the big brother up the hill? Well, it was it, because it was a, essentially a direct-to-consumer uh, business, right? Most, uh, uh, you know, very limited distribution outside. It was where small wineries and imagery is a small winery uh, have to be. It's they we didn't have to use wholesalers and retailers. We sold direct to consumer, whether it was in our wine club or online, uh, or uh, of course up at the at the winery itself. And it was a profitable winery. Yeah, it mm. was as a standalone. It was it definitely added value to the. And interestingly enough, the wine group really didn't see it as that. But today they have with Jamie Benziger as the winemaker, they are introducing uh, and have introduced in the last year a national version of imagery right. uh, with it with a distinctly different label. And it's uh, its growth curve is 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 quite extraordinary. They Ooh. think it's going to it might eclipse Benziger. <laughs> really? It's growth curve. Really? I love it because we we have remarked on the label. It's kind of a gentle sloping V or it looks like cleavage or something. That's how I see it. The Right, right. The way we okay, I'm glad we're not the only curves. ones. <laughs> no, the Super. growth curve I'm talking about is just the set. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know who who decided on that label, but they, I'm sure there was a lot, was of, pretty a lot of thought it behind it. it. Yeah, it's pretty sexy. Yeah. It works on a national level. I mean, you know, in in Sonoma Valley, where people think imagery and they think a art, modern art yeah. painting with the Parthenon in it somewhere, and then all of a sudden you see this sort of very drastic change from that design. I think in Sonoma, it's maybe a little tougher to to swallow, but on a national, that's a label that stands out on a shelf that no longer has seven brands all grouped and now has right. 700 brands that are competing for that shelf space, right? That's right. Yeah, they, they've done a, a, you know, that's a success story big time. They That was a gem in the rough that they kind of came on to over the course of, well, they're now in their fourth year of ownership, but they kind of arrived at this and said, well, why can't we take this thing nationally? And, and, you know, the marketing person that we left behind, 
uh, a woman by the name of Jessica Labounty worked with them closely to create this thing and has now done quite you know, an incredible job with, with bringing this thing nationally. And Chris Benziger, uh, who really never got a chance to, to market and sell um, imagery because it was a as I said earlier, just a direct-to-consumer brand. Uh, he's now uh, showcasing this and making it you know, kind of a, a, you know, a second-life career for him to be a, the, the imagery guy. Yeah. And now, Tim, what's your plan going forward? Are you, do you want to just do consulting and, and be involved uh, at Sonoma State, or is there at some point you're going to say, you know what, hang it up and um, grab the fishing rod? <laughs> well, you know what? Or put I, your name on another label. No, no. I, I, I am really uh, fulfilled right now with, uh, with the diversity of my clients and, and indeed the, the classroom work. It's, you know, it's one of those things where I've got to kind of pinch myself. I don't have to set an alarm. I mean, the classes... Uh, you know, don't start that was at, my college experience too. Actually, they don't start at <laughs> oh dark thirty because the students wouldn't put up with that, and uh, and the clients don't really want to see the outside guy until they've had their couple of cups of coffee and cleared their emails as well. So from the, from a lifestyle standpoint, it's working great, and the and the as I say, the diversity of the work uh, from succession planning and strategic planning through to mergers and acquisition work is right up my alley in terms of excitement. And it's you know honestly, there's a there's a part of me that. Uh, enjoys the fact that it's not, you know, mine. I'm, I'm really the coach. I'm really, I'm doing it for somebody else. I've had my day on the field as the quarterback and, and took my licks and, and in some cases scored. And, and now I'm really, to, you know, there's a, a, I look at it this way. I've gone from a success to significance. I'm, I'm starting to uh, be able to share what I know in a meaningful way for people and allow them to to flourish. And of course I'm being compensated for it. It's not like I'm, I'm a priest or anything. And I get that, but, uh, it's, it's, it, it's less intense. It's less anguish. I don't go to bed thinking about my employees or thinking about, you know, whether a new product is going to stick or not, or whether I have to fly and, you know, on moments notice to some market to deal with some distributor issue, et cetera. It's just, it's good for my time in my life in my early sixties now. And it gives me more time quite honestly with my family. And what do you do? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do if you're not working? Well, uh, I thought at one time golf was going to be something that I would spend a little more time with, but that's not me. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I like to ride my bike. I like to uh, swim. I've got a lap pool uh, that, I, that I get to use uh, in the summer months. I, you, you were a swimmer in, yeah. in high school or college. And college. Or the other, right? yeah. all, all my life. And what did you swim, Tim? What was your... My principal was a, was a butterfly, but I did the individual medley and middle and sprint distance freestyle. I was, you know, uh, the two of my heart, I was an All-American high school swimmer, and it, and it, was, it was a huge investment of, of, of time and energy. And it was something that, uh, you know, defines me to this day, allows me to... Uh, it's not as bad as swimming, you know, for two or three hours. Not, no, no meeting is, is as laborious as trying to maintain, you know, that level of, of, of competency in swimming. So there, it, it seems that I brought boredom into my life very early and, and, and got very good at being bored. And, and now I'm, I'm avoiding it uh, successfully. Well, that's called discipline. Tim, <laughs> yeah. okay. Tim what's coming up in the wine industry for the next 10 years? <laughs> oh, boy. If I knew that, then I probably would get yeah. back in. <laughs> I'd put some money back in it. Yeah. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners want to hear your thoughts. No, later, I, I, listen, I, I think that, uh, you know, we, I'll, I should step back to the to university for, for a bit. We, we, did a na we did a national survey of CEOs. This is the second year we've done it in anticipation of what they call the wine industry financial symposium that 
uh, happens in September of every year. And so the university, uh, and, and there's two professors there that I work with, um, launch this survey every year. And we ask CEOs, what's, you know, what, are, what are their biggest concerns? What keeps them up at night? And what are they working on for the future? And um, it seems that people are mostly concerned about the contraction of the, the, the tiers, the consolidation. You know, you think of, uh, you think of our industry, you can think of it like an hourglass. You've got, on one, on one side, you've got the suppliers, which are, you just seem to pop up every day. You've got a nice wide uh, you know, uh, distribution of, of producers, and then it squeezes very tightly into the wholesale tier, which is getting more and more consolidated as Southern Wine and Spirits and a few others start to really take almost 85% of the distribution into, wow. into, wow. into single ownership, two or three of them. And then it's, then it, you know, it winds out with, uh, the, the, the many different places that you can buy wine these days from wholesale, I mean, retailers to, you know, online versions, et cetera. So, uh, that is, that's what's on people's minds. It's certainly, um, something that it doesn't exist in any other industry where there's so much control in the hands of the, if you will, the intermediary and, and it's protected by laws in many States. You, you have to, because of post prohibition laws, uh, deal with these licensed distributors and they've, they've created tremendous economies of scale and are now controlling access to market. And that's, that's a concern. But if you look out 10 years, what, uh, my sense is that it's going to be a more, uh, with, with the advent uh, or with the, you know, the firm, you know, establishment of the digital e-commerce, the next generation is simply not, Amazon is already delivering things to you within, it seems like an hour. Uh, and if drones start getting involved and if it, it's going to be the, the problem for our industry is going to be differentiation with with a with a with a with a significant point of view that wants makes somebody want to buy your brand. What we are seeing is experiences more and more of the next generation. Yeah, they want the wine. And, it, in, and, and, and the good news is that the wine industry across the board is making great wines. The bad news is that the wine industry across is making great wines, which means they can pretty much go anywhere to find good wine. Now the question is, where do they want to go? And we early on, Mike Benziger, you know, as our visionary, got people to come to Benziger because of our tour, bringing people into the vineyard and bringing them into our caves after those were constructed. But that's, that's price of entry now. I mean, people expect to be able to have access to your cellar, expect to have access to the vineyard and, and be able to maybe uh, sit down with the winemaker or somebody who's very well trained in the wines and have a one-on-one. -on -one. It's got to be more than that. And that's where the market is going. It's, it's, it's becoming more mainstream. And like so many other retail buying experiences, it's more than just the product. It's got to be how you feel when you're there and how you're treated when you're there. And what did you learn when you were there? We used to call it edutainment. We'd educate them about uh, about what the what wine, the world of wine, and how we were making it. And at the same time, we made it fun. Our, in fact, our uh, tagline, Bart may remember, was you know going beyond the expected and having fun doing it. I think there's more and more of that has got to come up. It's not going to be in the vineyards and in the cellars and in the the labs, if you will. We're perfecting a product. It's going to be creating a deep relationship with consumers through some kind of novel or meaningful experience. Do you see anybody out there right now that you think is going to be a clear winner in the next five, 10 years? No, I, I mean, honestly, I think that what it portends is there's going to be more and more uh, different, and you know, it's going to be more diverse. 
people are going to, you know, take you on horseback to their vineyards. People are going to take you and let you stay in their, in their, you know, single cabin out in the woods. It's only accessible by, you know, God knows what Land Rovers or whatever. I mean, I think it's going to be, it's going to be more experience experiential. And as a result, it's, it, these are going to be small, potentially small producers, but and in any event, there's going to be a, a, a wider range of experiences. And I, yeah, I don't see anybody's got a corner on that. I mean, it is the thing that, that we have here, right? Is you know, the reason that people want to come here and the reason that, um, you know, we live here and deal with all of the, you know, the cost of living and, and whatever the traffic, whatever it is. Um, it's a great place to be. Um, the more, and since you can get wine, you know, good wine anywhere now, um, that is what we have to, to share in Sonoma and Napa and North, you know, Northern California is, you know, a little slice of, of our lifestyle. And, you know, if that's a curated experiential deal, great. If not, it's, you know, um, let's continue to find ways to share this lifestyle that we all, you know, the reason that, you know, you can work in a winery for 28 years and put up with family members that rumble and break each other's legs. Uh, it, and, you know, basically are still doing that if it's not physical. It's, uh, emotional. it's, it's emotional. It, it's, you know, that's, that's what we have um, above and beyond m- making and, and selling great wine, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm just looking at, at you, Sam, and Bart, and, and saying, you know, I'm, we're sitting in Bart's house here, uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful area of Sonoma. Uh, and I, I noticed as I was walking up that you have, maybe it's the paddock down there with the horses, et cetera. I mean, that's a very novel, special, I mean, there's only one, right. I mean, there are people who have horses, there's people who have paddocks and there's people who live on mountainsides, et cetera, but that there's only one here, here. And I know you have a brand and, uh, for, for someone to learn about you, uh, and get a day with you or an hour with you or half an hour with you or a meal with you, et cetera, on your property where you just share your lifestyle, as Sam was saying. And Sam, of course, your your family has terrific assets and a tremendous uh, legacy of, of, of uh, excitement from your, from your mom and dad to you and your brother. But uh, you, you, you can't really scale that up. I mean, there's only one Sam. There's only one Bart. And there's only one homestead for you, Bart, I'm presuming. And so is that a big moneymaker for you? I don't know. But it may be a point of difference that says, no, you get to go to this guy's house and he's a foodie and his wife's awesome and she's in the kitchen and you can talk to her about the freaking stock market when you're there and it's the whole thing. And then they put you up in the, you know, wherever. And then it's like, wow. And they, you know, people would pay for that. Right. So there's so there's this, you know, there's this I'm envisioning and I'm sure they're out there. uh, There's these brokers of these ideas if you put yourself into play like that where someone would say well look i can get you you know once a month you know for 10 months out of the year not during your holiday or your vacation time people to come up here and hang with you and who knows maybe you do get a horse that can be ridden etc and you go down that trail and the next thing you know you're in the business of being a um you know, the host of an experience. Oh, by the way, yeah, we, you want them to buy a case of Dane Sellers. Entertainment. You, you want them to buy a case of Dane Sellers. I mean, there's got to be some there, there. They got to like, they got to put on the table, you know, what not only cover you for your expenses, et cetera, but buy your wine if that's what the end game is. And I think more and more that's going to happen. Well, so that, that kind of answers my question was going to be at from a consumer side, um, you know, from the, from the, the John side of the table, you know, what, what should you look for in the wine world in the next couple of years? What are the, the changes? What are the, the, you know, business trends or whatnot? That sounds like, you know, seek out those 
types of, you know, more I, th- I think the word is access. access. If somebody is mm-hmm. going to be able to get, I mean, people who have means, uh, you know, wealth, want to do things that are pretty much not available to the average bear. Not exactly. just because, yeah. just because the average bear, you know, is, 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 they don't like the average bear. They just, they just say, well, what else can I do? So I'm going to spend this much. I only have so much time. And that's the thing with people with means. Often they're the most limiting factors, their time, whether they're involved in creating wealth with their business or they're, they're spending time doing whatever they like to do. But when they decide to go for something, they want it to be unique. They want it to be special. They want it to be custom. And for the for them to be able to you know pick the menu with you, you'd say maybe back to my Bart story, Bart. Well, I can do a paella for you. I can you know I, we can slaughter a cow. We can have Harry Weisswasser come up here and do it for fifty people. Whatever. I mean, there's things you can do with enough time, right? You know, a lot of people in this valley, Bart, that can that can support you on this. And the next thing you know, you've got a couple of these blowout things that are happening that are you it's kind of your life on steroids it's like well then you get the caterer to help you or whatever and that's how we do weddings right that's how we do special celebrations birthdays we like that people like that 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 communing around a concept is very special because of somebody's birthday or their wedding or you know a a celebration of some sort and that's when you i mean think about how we do it we when we do weddings we make them custom right because we are individuals and no it's this is going to be in this location and this is how it's going to roll in these speeches and these are the people that are going to be on the altar and this is the outfits we expect you to wear and this is who you're going to sit at the table etc i'm cal i'm planning a wedding right with my son but (laughs) the point is you 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 create this for them and they'll pay you for it Right. And I think this is, you know, the, the long way around saying, where, where's it going to go? No one's going to own that. I mean, you own properties. You, 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 it's an individualized experience that people want. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt we're already kind of seeing that in, you know, Gunlock Bunchu is established that they are putting on music and it goes with their wine and it's becoming one in the same and they're having great success. They with have, it. you know, it's they've been taken amazing. that position. Yeah. And, and, you know, the folks at Scribe are doing what they're doing. You know, it's not a restaurant, but you can go there and you can taste this amazing food and, um, and, and they're, you know, carving their thing and, you know, reprise is doing their thing. And so, yeah, I mean, we're already seeing that, um, your job and my job is to figure out how do we do it on our little, you know, smaller budgets and whatnot. Vinyl records and, and tie dye t-shirts. Right. Well, vinyl Sunday has become a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, you've started to carve that experience and right. there are people that are actually come to Sonoma for vinyl Sunday. All the way from, actually we had somebody from like Germany at one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the thing is it can't scale, right? It, it's right. the business can only be as big as the time right. you, you can put into it and, and the time that people are going to want to come. And it's probably mostly a weekend deal, et cetera. But, uh, so yeah, the big question is what, what is, what does the wine industry look like in 10 years? I think it looks like it's going to continue to be more and more fragmented. If you think of it structurally from a business standpoint, it's going to be more competitive. The, 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 the choking at the point of distribution is going to become the place for the big guys to play. The little guys continue to get bounced out of that. They cannot get share of mine with the distributor. They cannot get share of mine with the retailer. It's a little bit more of a, I don't want to call it a commodity play, but it's an economy of scale play. So the little guy, and that's most of the product producers, the little guy is going to have to figure out a way to create um, a scale of, of that's profitable for them based on having something that the big guys really don't want to spend their time doing, and that's customizing anything. They want to create uniformity. They want to create... Uh, a mass, you know, if you will, a mass production model that allows them to scale up globally. And the little guy's simply not going to do that. They've, you've got to create a, a more localized, focused, differentiated uh, experience along with some great wine. So how do Bart, 
how, do, how does Bart and Sam bottle that experience and create, put everything that you are, you guys, into that bottle? Is it purely the label that sells at that point? Is it? Okay. I think it's because well, these, I, mean, I think it's because they're genuine. I think people want to meet genuine people. And you know, when you go visit Sam at the tasting house and you spend 10 minutes with him, he's a genuinely nice guy, fun loving person. I will person. laugh at my own jokes just as much in the tasting room as I do on the podcast. <laughs> I guarantee. <laughs> and, and Bart is the same way. And I think people relate to that. So I think that's their sort of little niche that they have is that you know, you have a connection with them when you come visit here that you can tell this is a real person. You're not dealing with a conglomerate. You're not dealing with a huge company. You're dealing with a, a single person's passion. Um, and I think that that is, um, is uh, worth its weight in gold. Yeah, you know, Brian, thank you. I, I think something for me has always been, and we were always allowed to do, whether it was at Kenwood or Benziger, we were able to lay it out there. We were able to share our experiences with everybody, what we were doing, how we made the wine, why we did the things, and people just loved it. So I've always wanted to just kind of lay it out there. This is how we do. It's not, you know, spoken magic. It is it, it, it's There's definitely some smoke and magic. <laughs> you, you but know, I think something that I've learned here with the podcast is that we have definitely, we lay it out there. You, you probably know more about us than what um, is necessary, but I think it comes through, it comes through in the wine. And I think it's compelling and the people want to know, you know, wh why we're doing what we're doing. And um, if we can make a good product and tell a compelling story, then I think people will continue to gravitate towards it. And I think you just got a great consultation from, yeah, from I know. Tim I really Wallace. Been taking, good thing this was recorded. Of, uh, I should have been taking, kind of like know. college, I should have been taking notes. I know, because now I'm already envisioning people over here riding horses and drinking wine on the deck. <laughs> Slaughtering the cow I mean, I'm there. sold, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> listen, listen, the, one of the reasons we do this podcast, Sam, is so we don't have to take notes because we can just listen to it again. Well, and you know, I, one, one thought of a full circle, it just occurred to me, and Bart, you may remember this, but the Glen Ellen brand back in the day, every back label was different. Yeah. They would have uh, illustrations from um, Val Harristy's dad, I believe, uh, was was the uh, Jan Harristy, I believe, right. was an artist. And he would do an illustration, a hand drawing of, for example, I remember Mike with his son Buck fishing or Bruno with wife Helen, you know, uh, labeling or uh, Joaquin in the vineyard pruning, et cetera, et cetera. And people would look at these back labels and they go, what is this? And they recognized that this was really a family with real people, with real names, doing real things. And that's what drew people close to that brand. They, they not only thought it was a great wine at a great price. This is Glen Ellen. Glen Ellen. And, and every skew or every... every well, so, or? so we did about 12 different labels every, in the course oh, so of like, a year. So we got, it got mixed and matched. So oh, you okay, might so see it on the Cabernet, okay. et cetera. But it, over the course of the year, they would continue to make you know, another set of and, these and labels. I, and I mean, wasn't it that they were actually... Each case had different labels? Yeah, well, it was. they probably did, like, like I said, they probably did like 12 different labels a year because they had to produce them in scale in order to make them affordable to put them on all those you know, millions of cases that were going out. Not millions of cases, yeah, in millions of bottles for sure. Uh, so this was back uh, earlier to like, well, how do these guys you know, you know, put themselves in the position right. with how do wine in the bottle up? and the packaging? Well, I'm not saying that that idea is necessarily the right way to go or not, but it certainly worked for Glen Ellen uh, and, and it really the bottom line was we tried to create a relationship with the consumer 
when in a situation where we weren't with the consumer, obviously we, they were drinking it in their home, wherever they were living, but they could look at the back label and go, wow, these people seem like nice guys. And then of course, you know, we would welcome them to the winery anytime they were out there and then try to, you know, engage them in the taste room, et cetera. Yeah. Our own focus group just told us what to do with your labels now. See, <laughs> my label bill just went, just got more expensive. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, but it's, it's fascinating. Here. That's yeah. exactly what he's been talking about. How do you scale up when your only options are what's in the bottle or who listens to the podcast or how do you get that message across that you are just local guys doing I mean, the best you can. I right see here. scaling, you know, at a 16600 size, you know, our scaling is, is not necessarily on the production size, although we've increased production a little bit. It's more about how many people know that story and share that story because, because there's only one me, there's only one Phil, you know, you can only share that so much. You can't scale how many people can come through and have that experience. But what you can do is have a, an experience that's so as engaging enough that when people go home, it's not just here's this great bottle of wine that I found when I was in Sonoma. Let's have it for dinner. It's, Here's this great one I found in Sonoma that we're gonna have for dinner, and and let me tell you about the family, the people that that made it, and all of a sudden now you have somebody who knows that story and you know hasn't ever set foot, you know, in your in your tasting house or even you know even in your, in your town, um, and they're gonna go find it whether they can find it at a store or not. They can find it online. They can you know find us on social media and 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 engage that way. So it's a much you know it's um, certainly not the steep curves that are say on a new national bottle of imagery or something but it's it's a it's a growth curve a scale curve that's you know more like the hills that i like to ride my bike up it's you know really <laughs> slow and gradual and, and eventually you get there but what you have is um an engagement level with your customers that um is just so much deeper than you know they they can buy a bottle on the shelf and they can see it there all the time and, and don't have any other sort of background or connection to it you have a truly integrated marketing program there right well I mean, we just un until you to... can tie-dye the label i mean <laughs> we've thought about we've thought about it or a, a bottle koozie you know keep, keep your uh, yeah. <laughs> white wine cold you know in some that. ways you you're you're saying you want to make that bottle of wine a member of their family like you yeah. they got to meet your family they got meet you phil etc and they had a feeling about it. and they bought the wine and uh we've already established that everybody's making great wine so it wasn't necessarily just the wine it was the experience they were having with you they bring the thing home and then they're reminded when they pull a cork with their friend at a nice meal, et cetera, and they go, I only tell you about these guys. It's like they feel like they're, they're, they're with the family again, right? right. And that's, that's a brand. That's if you can get that repeat purchase and that referral, right? There's a, there's a, I'm pretty sure this is the case, that they, you know, there's, a play, there's a highfalutin magazine called the Harvard Business Review. And the number one downloaded article, or the, one, the number one copied back in the hard copy days of you know, before downloading, was an article, in, in the title was The Number One Number You Need to Grow. I think that's what it was called, something like that. And that number one number is referrals. In what we would call today word of mouth. That notion, and in our business, an influencer, and in the world of you know digital age influencers, right? It was this whole idea that if a third party, someone you agreed with, and in this case, the guy who brings home the wine, he invites his buddy over, he, he tells the the Katori story. 
says, hey, check this out. And you know what? These people and this guy, that, that old man, he looks like Jerry Garcia. And he's out there. The freaking wines are incredible. And they're freaking organic. And it's like, whoa, you got to go there. And you have to you know, have the special you know, number to call them. And if I, you know, we text him, I'm sure he'll be there. And so, and you, you, you know, that's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Give me a sip of that, right? You, they, they're, they're sipping the experience with you. Yeah. If you get your brand to that level, you, you got a franchise. Wow. You know what Fingers. I just, Tim, you just reminded me of something. The first time that I ever heard about Twitter was in the tasting room at Imagery uh, when we put it on the little menus. Uh, it was like on the bottom of the menus. That, and then we used to send out little tweets about, hey, we're tasting this today. And I had, I mean, this is years before I think most people had heard of it. I don't know how they got a hold of that. If it was someone that Joey knew or um, what that was, but um, and this has got to be. I don't even know how many years ago. I mean, but Brian, you also just like found Instagram a few months ago. So <laughs> no, I just found out how to work Instagram okay. a couple okay. months. He's ago. not 35. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, you know, it's funny. I just looked. Um, the first person I heard about Instagram from was Jeff Bunchu. And he did it. He told me about it because there were athletes and, and musicians that were on it. At the time, it was so small you could actually interact with these people. And I just looked, and I joined in 2008 of, at, on Twitter. And, um, and it, it, is, it, it has changed. I would say Twitter itself, there was a lot more interaction that was easy before it kind of blew up. And you know, now it's just everything's about Donald Trump. So. <laughs> well, now it's a, a new Facebook platform. But nonetheless, it still is different. Um, and it's still very important. And you can find us at Winemakers Pod on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you. You know, I think this has been one of the most fascinating shows. We've been through discussions with people like Joel Peterson, et cetera, who've gone through this, the learning curve, the sales curve, the sales curve, um, and uh, the selling of their, their, what their property was, their own intellectual property. And he hated the, the focus groups on the labels and this, you know, that marketing that can get so onerous and take so much out of a company in, in terms of analysis paralysis. You can't make a decision because you don't have enough brand information, et cetera. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating what you, you just cut through all of that. And this is a big lesson for everybody. I mean, this show could, could stand alone on a business network. There was there was always the battle between the business side and the production side, and yeah. I always remember that um, uh, Terry Nolan was a winemaker at Benziger, and he used to always have to go prepare his budget during harvest, mm. and, it, and, and Tim's shaking his head, you know. But it was it's one of those things that happened. Could have done it the, during the summertime, probably right. is why the head is shaking. But 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 it, it was always something like that, you know. I mean, it is. It's. It's a complicated business and, um, yeah. uh, and the, the most complicated you, business. You know, my story then and the story is now too, Bart, and, and we could have done something about it, was because we were privately held and we were, we were um, you know, what was an LLC, we were member-owned, we all had to file our taxes like everybody else at the end of the year, well, oh. you know, by April, right? right. So, so we were on a fiscal, the calendar year for our fiscal management, and that, that meant, you know, getting that thing done getting those budgets done before the end of the year. But yeah, there was always a fight. And it wasn't Terry. It was certainly Mike and I going, this is bullshit. You're not going to get anything from us. You know, we're not doing it. My guys are working. You know, you can't give us this information. And of course, then when guy like Jeff McBride, who someone that you guys all know, when he came to work with us, he goes, no, I can get this done. We can get this done. I said, we'll get it done by August. Right. 
He says, I know what my 12 month running is from August to August and I'm just going to put it in. And then if you're going to allow me to have a, you know, a little bit of room there when we actually get through the crush and determine what our real bottling is and what those bottling costs are going to be going forward. He says, if you don't mind me, you know, modifying it, you know, and of course that's fine to a budget as long as, you know, it's, you know, theoretically most of it's in play. And that's what we did. So when Jeff came along, with all due respect to previous heads of production at Benziger, <laughs> a guy that understood the business side of it, we figured out a way to get well, it Well, trust me, we always liked when they had to go into some sort of mid-harvest meeting because things are always tension enough on the crush pad. And so if they were removed, things always ran just fine when they were gone. <laughs> you could yell at somebody really else amazing. for a whole couple <laughs> hours. So, Tim, do you have a desert island wine if you have to be stuck with one? What would you have? Oh, boy. Um, I've you know, the, 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 the genie for me that came out of the bottle was I was in Vin Expo in Bordeaux in, uh, I want to say it was 19 name dropper. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you the situation because look, here's the deal. I've never, uh, you know, I've never been the wine guys we know as I've shared with you, but here I am, we're, I'm head of exports for Glen Ellen and, uh, we had shipped six containers of 187s, which are those airline-sized bottles for those listening, of wine to Ireland in the first six months of the year, uh, I want to say it was 1992. I'm just going to stay with that. And Vin if Vinexo was in 92, if it was in 90 or 92, but there it is. And the Irish importer, a great guy, says to me, hey, I'm going to be at VinExpo. I haven't seen you since you signed us up several years ago. We're having such a good go with you guys. Please let me take you to dinner, you and what turns out to be my mother-in-law, Helen Benziger, who was traveling with me. And uh, he takes me to this place, and we're in France, of course, and he orders the wine. And it's an 85 Latour, which I think is, you know, Mike Benziger has suggested, you know, is one of the classic wines of all time. And I didn't know that. He has it decanted, which I'd never, I'd never had, I had never had a wine decanted. You didn't have to decant proprietor's reserve in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, and, there, and I didn't have a pocketbook, you know, I wasn't able, I didn't have the discretion to buy those kinds of wines. So, uh, anyway, he pours it. We have this wonderful meal. He tells me all about why he thinks it's a very special meal and he thinks that the Benzigers are great people and blah, blah, blah. And it's just one of those things that if I could get back to that, that time and space in terms of that, that experience, that multi-sensual experience, I would do it again. So I take that one. You and my the, wife, by the take way. Take the Latour. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's amazing about that is an, you know, you're drinking an 85 Bordeaux in, in the early 90s seven years into it yeah it's you know, and it's still yeah. got a lot to go right it's probably today a better wine who knows yeah but I mean, for me that was it was just ready to go it was like show me your you know show me your body right here and right now right. and it was something i enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> wow well 85 latour all right we have taken a lot of your time today but i'm sure my pleasure on this one our listeners are going to be very very happy um how do we how do we can how do people like get a or can you take a class how are you, are you is there access online how can people find well, yeah, let's you get a shout or, out to the school or sonoma yeah. state yeah, yeah. yeah. i appreciate that cool. yeah um so sonoma state has uh full-on programs whether you have an undergraduate degree uh you have uh a wine mba you have an executive wine mba you have this newest program that we're working on, which is a global wine executive MBA, which is to say 50% of it will be online, 
which is where more and more executive uh, graduate school education is going because you have these mid-career professionals, as I mentioned, who don't want to give up uh, you know, as much time as you might have to to take the traditional MBA. So you find this all online. You go to ssu.com, cinemastateuniversity.com, and you get right to it, and you can see a drop-down that allows you to see what the programs are. In addition to that, we have what we call certificate classes, um, and some of those are, you know, eight weeks, and, and some of them, you know, they're, they're like Saturday what, mornings. Here's right. one for us, um, Sam, understanding the numbers and in, uh, in introduction to the wine business finance. Oh, how to hire somebody who understands the numbers and then explain it to <laughs> you, because I'm still working on that. Yeah, and there's, there's, one, there's sales, there's entrepreneurship, there's compliance, there's these things that that are kind of uh, not life's work necessarily for someone who's not in that space and they just want to get conversant enough so that when the accountant or when the compliance person is sitting with you that you at least understand the language. Is there something, because this is something that I get asked every once in a while, is people who are in an industry, in a business, and they want they want to transition to the wine business. They want to you know, find a place where their skills and experience um, can can fit into the wine world. Um, is that a, is there a place is that a place that you know for them to check what what would your oh that would be? be a terrific place if they want to be on the business side of it especially sure I mean that's exactly how you would get it done it we we do have people in the classroom I mentioned earlier they could be a winemaker trying to get a, a business side of it or even a business person trying to upgrade their their skill set but there are definitely some people in there that are not even in the wine business that might be professional uh, accountants or financial people etc that I just have a love affair with the industry but want to understand how the industry works in order to get into it at maybe a mid-level because right. they're not starting out in the tasting room and working into sales and then you know trying to get into a marketing job and work their way up which is perhaps more traditionally how people have done it so these are mid-career people at the executive level and then at the wine mba level it's you know they're probably have average age is probably in the late 20s which is more where more and more mba students are 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 with respect to age they don't want to take people right out of college because the, the in classroom in classroom experience as i alluded to earlier is really so rich and dynamic that's what you want to be there to hear your students debating the issues not only from the teacher standpoint but from the student standpoint and you, you, there's just something about generational acceptance of an idea if, you know if somebody your your age sam and you, you seem like the youngest guy at the table here i'm pretty sure that's the case pretty, pretty sure. uh, you, you you might you might take more seriously someone talking about a social media platform that you hadn't heard of and why they think it's legit when you recognize that that individual has a lot of experience has grown up with social media and is giving it um it's okay whereas if you know some of us said hey you ought to check out this platform you're like yeah i'll check it out but yeah. i haven't heard about it maybe it's a dead end so so the, your, the classroom experience is my point is really important uh and your peer group uh discussion is really important to your to your studies have you seen any shows at the green center i have what was your favorite one <sighs> well i uh i saw steve martin wow. playing his banjo wow and cracking a few jokes uh that that was a memorable one and i've seen i've seen the symphony i've seen the san francisco symphony up there and i've um, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful asset for people that are in the area. And even those who were planning to vacation out here, um, it's a stunning acoustic, uh, chamber. Yeah. That's uh, a beautiful place. Yeah. We're very fortunate to have that on the campus of SSU. Yeah. You get tickets? 
No. no. <laughs> I mean, I buy tickets. I buy tickets, and I don't buy them. Uh, I don't get them any cheaper than anybody else. There is there are student discounts, so if they become students, no mistake, yeah. you get access. There you go. No, you guys, I know Brian. Susan and Richard Idell. Richard, I think, was on the board for a while, so he was getting tickets. I would see him at all the uh, Pink Martini shows. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know, if you ever want to go to something and I'm not going, I'm happy to give you my tickets. <laughs> Let me get your number. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> well, Tim, thank you so much very much my pleasure we very truly much. appreciate Thank it you. i know this is going to be very popular with our listeners and we've really interesting yeah different direction than a lot of where we go you know well thank you guys all very much and as as everyone knows it's christmas time so merry christmas happy new year happy holidays thank, thank you so much yeah. right and can we get our quick shout outs yeah first of all to todd jolly at yeah, this, uh, sonoma's uh, best Sono- the stone edge 2014 Farms. surround beautiful uh, you know i'm beautiful. highly biased by both the winemaker and the grower of this, but God, that's a nice bottle of wine. Yeah, the 13 and the 14 are both bomb. Um, and I just want to get a shout out to um, to uh, the Rhone Room, also uh, the panel in Sonoma, all of the places that you can buy wine that we like to buy wine. And Son- well, Sonoma's best, right? Yeah, and uh, Sandra Bernstein uh, from The Girl and the Fig. I think, did you guys see a picture of our little things that are going yes. on the table? Every table at The Girl and the Fig now will get a card advertising uh, the Both winemakers podcasts. podcast and our sister our sister podcast we have a sister podcast now Tim yeah. the bite goes on the bite goes on dot com radio misfits podcast network <laughs> <laughs> everywhere you can possibly think of so. that's a cool thing all right I'm John Myers we are the winemakers thank you Brian Casey thank you so much Bart Hansen Sam Katuri as always Tim Wallace what a pleasure that's <laughs> fascinating show and thanks to everybody for listening as always so yeah happy new year everyone. my pleasure happy enjoy peace and love guys